0: After having just visited the gemstone city Idar-Operstein, I wanted to reach out to someone who could tell us more about the art of faceting and who has been equally fascinated with the technique's history, which also in Hatton Garden has a long-standing tradition. To do so, I contacted Justin Prim. Since 2013, he has been cutting gemstones and has been publishing articles and most recently even launched his new book, The Secret Teaching of Gem Cutting. Justin, originally from America, has traveled the world and is now living in Bangkok. Where, if he is not faceting, writing, or recording fantastic videos for his YouTube channel, he's likely teaching others at the Institute of Gem Trading. So, to discuss his love for and the art of faceting, his research and practice, I'm excited to talk and welcome Justin Prim. Welcome, Justin.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm happy to be here.
0: Justin, so to start, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think you summarized it pretty well. Um, I'm an American guy who's been cutting gemstones for a bunch of years now. And I started cutting stones um, right around the time that I turned 30. I guess I must have been having like an early Midlife crisis because I I wanted to. I I moved to a different city across the country and I changed my job and I changed really a lot of stuff about my life at that time. And I I got into gemstone cutting really on accident. I, I stumbled into the gem trade when I moved to San Francisco. And I basically got hooked as soon as I saw a gem show, you know, a trade show. I'd never seen one before. I'd never experienced the jewelry trade ever at all. And so when I stumbled into this world, I was really just, I didn't know what to make of it. I I was a little bit curious and interested and the artistic side of me very immediately kind of chimed in. and, And I had this little voice in my head like, how are they cutting these stones, you know? How do they cut these tiny little things? They look so perfect, you know? I discovered pretty quickly after that that there was a gem cutting club, like a lapidary club in my neighborhood in San Francisco. So I joined it and I guess the rest was history. I started cutting, I got really obsessed with that and I started going almost every single day for a couple of years. And then eventually I got so into it that um i decided that i was going to need to know more you know i knew about cutting and polishing but i didn't really know anything about gems yet i had done some mining adventures with the club and i had been to the tucson show and even i had come and visited thailand and seen uh, chantaberry and bangkok which is like some major gem trading places but i still didn't really have a, a foundation at all about gemology or what was the difference between different stones and stuff like that so I decided that I was really going to make a big change and relocate to Thailand for school and then kind of had my fingers crossed that I would be able to basically enter the gym trade professionally through some contacts that I made in Thailand. And luckily for me, it worked out exactly how I was dreaming. I came here for six months. I finished my schooling with GIA and I got a mentor in the process of that and then he basically enabled me to meet a whole bunch of people and one of those people ended up being the director of aigs and i pitched her this idea for a gem cutting class and she hired me and um yeah it was amazing it was like a really a dream come true and i i never ever went home i've been in in thailand ever since that was i guess five years ago yeah it's just been a crazy adventure and the deeper i get into the gem trade the 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 more exciting and satisfying it has become
0: now Clarify something. For any listeners that do not quite know what faceting gemstones is, could you describe the process?
1: I think if you haven't seen a lot of gemstones or you haven't really looked closely at them, it might not be completely obvious that there's different ways of cutting the stone. So the most simple and I guess the most traditional way would be just the cabochon. So cabochon is like a dome. It's a smooth, rounded top shape. It doesn't have any flat sides. So that's how I started. I I learned how to do the cabochons. And uh, that way is pretty easy to do. I mean, people were doing cabochons already 40,000 years ago. So it's really old. You know, it's older than farming, actually. It's which I just love the idea that You know, some hunter-gatherers were, you know, taking stones that they found and just rubbing them against rocks, and, you know, cabochons existed. So, but anyway, that's cabochons. I started that way, but eventually I knew I wanted to evolve into something a little bit more um, complicated and sophisticated, and so the, the faceted stone is usually what we see in most, uh, most jewelry, most high-end jewelry. So we have all different shapes but the distinguishing feature is that there's these flat faces all over the top and the bottom of the stone. So these are the facets. So the gem cutter, the faceter, is the person that's cutting those stones and you know we're looking very critically at the shape of the rough stone and then you know putting different facets in different places to reflect light to make a a beautiful pattern so that when we look at it, our eye sees a symmetrical pattern, but also the, those little facets are actually working like mirrors inside the stone. So they're sending the light that goes into the stone back to your eye. So when you see a faceted stone, or if you, you know, a diamond is such a good example because pretty much all diamonds are faceted. You, you won't find a diamond cabochon. So every time you see a diamond, you, you know, you see all those twinkling, sparkling lights coming back that's from the faceting so if you didn't cut the diamond in that way or if you didn't cut a a colored stone with facets it wouldn't be able to sparkle like that and that's why when we see cabochons they can be very beautiful for the color but they don't sparkle They, they mostly glow so that's how I like to distinguish them. One of them sparkles, one of them glows. And for me, I was always really attracted to the faceted stone. You know, there's something very geometrical and not necessarily mathematical, but it looks mathematical when you see it. And I was always intrigued by that. So um, once I started doing it, I really, I I got hooked. I fell in love with it. And really now I haven't done a cabochon in years, but I'm, you know, faceting stones all the time. So it's, it's definitely like uh, my life work right now i guess
0: you started cutting in 2013 and since you have also traveled the world to learn more about the trade so not only did you want to learn the technique you really wanted to see where it's come from and who else is practicing it and what's history behind it and you worked in the school in thailand and started publishing on the topic but what brought the fascination on
1: yeah well i don't know specifically i mean i i think we can put together some pieces. I mean, before I was into gem cutting, I was already very much living an artist's lifestyle. I, I had been playing music, I had been into sewing, doing different kind of crafty or buildy things. So I already had this side of my personality that was very much hands-on, creating stuff and trying to figure out, you know, what my place in this world was and how I was going to make a living and, and just be comfortable doing things that I like to do. So the idea of the gemstone cutting appealed in that way. You know, it's very much a traditional art form. You know, it goes back a long time, but it's something that's still very much in the world today. You know, you can you can become a gem cutter and buy and sell gemstones and make money, and that can be your living and everything like that. So all that stuff was very appealing to me and, and still is. But I guess, I don't know if there was already a precedent for my interest in history before this. Really, my my historical knowledge and journey started when I started gem cutting. It was really after I moved to Thailand. I I I read a book that was about. It was a small smaller book about the history of gem cutting. But when I read it, I was completely unsatisfied. Like I, I loved the book, and I still love the book. I'm so happy that that book exists. But it's like reading a Wikipedia article. Like it wasn't the full story. And as soon as I read it, I was like, okay, there's a lot of unanswered questions here for me personally, and. I don't know why, but I just took it upon myself. I guess I love traveling and I like meeting people, so it somehow in my brain made sense that I could just travel to different places in the world and meet gem cutters and ask them what their story was. And so I guess I got, I got the opportunity to do that. It was right when I first met my wife, Victoria. Not only am I a gem cutter, I'm married to a gem cutter. And so we have a very geeky gem cutting centric home life. So I met Victoria and Victoria is from a historical gem cutting region in France. And she's like the youngest master gem cutter that probably exists in the world today. And so when I first met her and we were starting to date and I went, I went back to France with her to meet her family and stuff. And she kind of like opened up this world to me. I mean, I was already kind of going there to look at some history, but it just so happened that she was such a core component to that story, you know, like she was really from that place, you know, this, this place in France called Jura, and it, it doesn't really exist anymore, but it's like an old-fashioned gem cutting center from the, you know, from the, let's say the 1700s up until about the 1950s. And and since then it's kind of dwindled. But we went up there and we saw this museum and, you know, we met an old gem cutter and saw some old technology. And then and then we just decided, okay, we're going to drive up to Eder Oberstein and see what's going on up there. Because I know that Germany has such a big role in the in the story of European gem cutting. So we went up there for about a week and we met some gem cutters and saw some more museums and just... I think after that trip, that was about a month, and I got so... You know, I guess if you're looking for some treasure, whether that's physical or, or historical, um, when you find it, when you find a little bit of it, you want more, right? And I got a huge taste of what I was looking for when I saw both Jura and Iter-Oberstein, and also we went into Geneva, which has a, its own, you know, gem-cutting history. So these three different places we saw on this trip, and I came home, and I just I instantly wrote a summary of the, of the book that I was going to eventually write, I wrote that, I turned it into a PowerPoint, and I immediately called the director of AIGS. This is actually how I got the job. I, I called her and I said, I just got back from Europe. And we had we had already set up a meeting for when I got back from Europe. But I said, I just got back from Europe. I just put together this PowerPoint of, of this history article, and I just want to come in and pitch it to you just so you can see how I am as a teacher and as a speaker. And she said, "Okay, sure. She she had no idea what to think about that. and I had never even done PowerPoint before. Like, I I think I was 31 or something at that point. I've never made a PowerPoint. But I had made some videos, and I I was a graphic designer before, so I knew how to make something attractive. And I came in, and I pitched her with this PowerPoint. And this is like a 500-year history that I had thrown together from the excitement of my trip. And sh- and the whole staff was just blown away. They were just like, "Whoa!" They're like, "How long have you been doing PowerPoint?" I was like, "This is my first one." And they were just like, "What? That was a pro." So they're like, "You're hired." You know, "You're hired for sure." So that was the beginning of the history. That was now five years. So since that time basically i've just been self-funding this whole project so every time i get a chance to go on vacation if i get if if i get the rare uh chance to get a funded trip somewhere like someone's invited me to come do a talk like i did i got to do that a few years ago in munich so i was like okay i'm going to munich for four days they're paying for it but if i stay an extra week i can go to a bunch of other places and i can go to vienna and i can go to uh you know a couple other places around in Germany and around Germany that have more history that I wanted to see so now anytime I'm in Europe I'm just like I have to go see every possible museum and and is there a train that I can take to get me to the next city that's not too expensive and so yeah after five years I have pretty much enough stuff that I've written this whole book it's not out yet it's it's in a rough draft form right now but it's coming up sooner or later I'm just not totally ready I, I want to do a few more research trips and COVID kind of stopped me but. Um, I don't know I guess I just I got hooked off that first taste and I I saw that there was really a lot of stuff to find I mean there's there's a lot of tradition out there but you know I'm, and I'm mostly focusing in Europe right now but you know between France England the Czech Republic Germany Italy I mean it's huge and there's still so much to go I haven't even been to Italy yet since I've started this, project. And I haven't been back to Germany. And there's so much history in Germany. So basically, as soon as COVID's over, as soon as I have all my plans right now finished, I'm like, okay, I have to get to Venice. I have to get back to Idar Oberstein. And uh, I really want to go back to the Czech Republic, because they've got a really romantic story over there, too, that I got to document a couple years ago. So I'm just itching to get back to Europe. There's so much history there. that, I, And of course, Paris. Paris is the epicenter of the whole thing. So Uh, There's lots of stories in France. I have to get back there. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm just addicted to the history. And I've gotten such uh, positive feedback from people online and also people that have seen my talks. And everybody's just been so intrigued by it. Nobody knows this story. You know, even people who are gem cutters don't know their own stories pretty much as, as far as I've seen. So when I, let's say, come to America and give a talk about American cutting, or if I come to the Czech Republic and give a talk about Czech cutting people are just like whoa i didn't i didn't even know the story of my own country and it's so interesting because it you know all of it's so related with you know the royal courts of europe the the industrial revolution and then if we go back to the renaissance i mean it totally has to do with everything that was technologically happening in the renaissance so it's a really cool story that really ties into almost every important thing Historically speaking, in, in in Western Europe, at least, everything that's happened in the last 500 years, I can connect it to gem cutting. And it it's awesome.
0: You mentioned it on your Kickstarter page. In fact, this world is usually a very secretive world. So perhaps it's not as surprising that people might not even know as much of the history outside of their own. Have there been any barriers then on getting this information?
1: Probably, I would say there's there's not been many the biggest barrier for me is that I live in Bangkok and all of the stuff I need to go see is in Europe so it's not so easy for me to just fly Um, but and of course there's a language barrier you know going into Germany is pretty okay and obviously London's okay but going into the Czech Republic there are not very many gem cutters that speak English you know even in Thailand there are really are no gem cutters that speak English in France it's 50-50. You know, there's a lot of people in the gem trade in France that speak English, but there's a lot that don't. So finding, you know, and especially when you want to talk to older people, like for me, I'm always looking for people that are really old. You know, I want to talk to people that are 80, 90, you know, 70, 60, whatever. But the older the people, and you know, if they're they're not from an English-speaking country, the less chance that they're speaking English. And also a lot of the literature that I'm looking at, a lot of it's French. You know, if I'm looking at the Czech story, then obviously everything's in Czech. If I'm looking at Thailand, everything's in Thai. So, and I don't speak any other languages than English. So Google Translate has become my best friend. Archive.org has become my best friend because there's so much old books on there that you can just download as PDFs. I can put the PDF straight through Google Translate and, you know, it's somewhat readable. And then if I have some friends, like, I okay, my wife's French and I've got some German friends and some Italian friends and some some uh, Czech friends now who can help me translate when I really have a phrase that I can't understand but mostly it's been great I mean even the grumpy old cutters that I've met have actually been quite flattered once they get past the initial shock of the fact that I'm here to you know kind of absorb their their secrets and stories but you know a lot of the older gem cutters who came out of an apprentice system You know, they did come from this older generation where things were more secret, but now they also understand that we're in a new generation. And they haven't at all adapted to the generation, Uh, you know, not speaking about everybody, because some of them have really well, but you know there's a few gem cutters I've met who are just. Exactly how you would imagine them to be They're old they do things the old way they don't do email they don't do text they don't have smartphones and they're they don't have apprentices because the world has changed so much that the way that they became gem cutters it just can't exist anymore no one has five years even in thailand no one has five years to give to an apprenticeship where you aren't even sure if you're going to make a good living after that it's it's just people would rather work at the mall or or go to college or do something else where they feel like they have more of an opportunity for changing their mind later you know if you do in a five-year apprenticeship you really shouldn't change your mind after that because you, you've you invested too much time. So a, a lot of them have been maybe a little bit abrasive in the beginning, but once I've sort of presented my my intentions to them, they've all completely warmed up to me. And I've had such incredible experiences with some of these older cutters. And the ones that I've gotten to spend extended periods of time with, we've become really good friends. And some of them even now, I the ones that do text, I sometimes text them every month or even every week. You know, I, I feel like some of these guys have become my long-distance mentors, but you know, I was a little worried about that and I and I do wonder, in some places like Edar Oberstein, where there's still such a thriving community and there are apprentices, I don't know if they really want me to come in and get all of their secret stuff, but I won't push them. You know, I'll just accept what they give me and I'll document what I can document and and you know the rest will be for the future if it's still there. But most of the time, I think everyone realizes that what I'm doing is quite important because most of the people that I meet are are the last generation. You know, there's no more gym cutters. There's no more new gym cutters in Switzerland. There's no more, almost no more new gym cutters in London. There's barely any new gym cutters in France. Um, Germany's a bit different, and Czech is also. They have a school still, so there's a few being trained, but. In Europe, gem cutting is a dying art. And the old masters, they know that. And they know that what they what they learned through so many years of, you know, repetitive trial and error with their master cutters, their mentors, you know, it's going to get lost. And if someone doesn't document it, you know, people, especially now in the time of COVID, people are old and there's COVID. It's so scary for me. Like some gem cutters that I wanted to meet have already died in the last two years. So I'm just... I'm urgently trying to get out of here. And, and when I meet them, they also understand, like, it's okay if we reveal the secrets now, because otherwise, we're, they're going to go into the grave. And the the future gem cutters of the world just will never know what happened, you know, and they won't know that specific way that those cutters cut. To me, it's really important. So yeah, I would say the barriers are quite minimal, mostly financial, I guess, just to to get around everywhere. But not a big deal for me. I, I'm totally dedicated and I'm happy to spend my own money to do it if, if that's what it takes.
0: Now, thinking of those research travels, what have been some some really main takeaways or highlights? Uh, what's been sort of the most surprising and, and interesting? Uh,
1: I guess my f- the two favorites so far have been the Czech Republic and London. The London story was actually quite good because I didn't know there were still traditional gem cutters in London. Um, And this goes all the way back to that first trip that I made uh, when I had first met my wife and we were in Switzerland. So we were in Switzerland and we got to go to this conference in Zermatt. And I got to meet a bunch of people in the European trade that I hadn't met. And there was a guy named Ed who was working for GIA um, in London at that time. And he told me, oh, you know, you have to go see these two old cutters. They're cutting with these hand crank machines. They're in Hatton Garden somewhere. I I don't know how to get a hold of them, but he sort of planted this idea in my mind that there were these two old cutters with these hand crank machines. And this was right at the beginning of my history trip. So I hadn't really understood the context of this whole thing yet, but a couple years went by and I finally was able to find these two guys find i got their phone number i called them long distance from thailand and said hey i'm i'm coming to to london in a couple of weeks can i come and see you and they said yeah sure we we have no idea who you are but sure you can come so i went up there and i was so excited to see these guys they're both mid 70s they apprenticed in the 1970s they they're just up in this almost like a forgotten attic of Hatton Garden with their hand crank machines just quietly cutting away, listening to the BBC and, you know, cutting the world's most expensive and greatest stones. Some people know they're there, but most people don't Most people in London don't even know they're there. And as soon as I got home, I I, I saw them only for like an hour, you know, I saw them for an hour. I was so incredibly excited to meet these guys. I went home back to Bangkok. It was Christmas. And I immediately was like, I have to get back to London as soon as possible. Like, can I possibly go in a month? No, I couldn't do that. But I looked online. I was like, surely I can get some kind of a research grant to go back for an extended period and document what these guys are doing. Because they are literally the last people in all of England doing this thing that nobody, nobody even knows about anymore. Like nobody remembers how to do it. Nobody even knows about these machines, you know, these hand crank old Jampeg machines. So. I stumbled upon this this research grant from the Society of Antiquaries of London. And I, I just basically filled it out that same day. I asked a couple of people in the gem trade, you know, can you be my kind of my reference sponsor for this? And I sent it in and it was like three days before the deadline. Like, totally lucky that I found it right at that moment because there was only like a couple days left before I could have even sent it in and about five months later i get an email from them i got the research grant and the whole idea of the grant was that i can go to london for two or three months and basically do a documentary apprenticeship with these guys and not have to worry about you know paying for my hotel and paying for my rent at home and everything like that so they gave me some money to go out there and i got to do it right before COVID hit like the summer before COVID, i was in london for two months I spent two days a week with these guys with my video camera, just interviewing them, documenting them, videoing everything they're doing. And then all the rest of the days, I was in the British Museum. I was meeting with museum curators. I was in the all of the museums. And I was able to put together enough stuff to where I was able to write like a 500-year history of the, the history of London gem cutting. And these guys were like the pinnacle of my story because the company that they work for which is called the chas matthews company um it's been going on for 125 years so they're like the oldest gem cutting company in england and they're the oldest gem cutters you know almost in england but definitely the using the oldest technology so it was so amazing to just spend time with these guys and then later i discovered that there was actually a third one a third cutter in ipswich who was even older than those guys also using the hand crank machine and he had a whole team of younger people that he had trained so because of that i was able to stumble into this world of you know antique british gem cutting and it, it's just so to me it's so romantic you know it's it's like you know victorian england and then you know like 1920s you know you're, like, you're thinking like pinky blinders and stuff like it's just that period of time you know the gem a is just forming and World War One, World War Two, you know, all this technology is changing and these guys are just there through all of it. And until today, you know, they're still there, you know, everything's changed, of course, everything even in Hatton Garden has changed hugely since then, but they never moved. They, they switched from one address to the other, but they never left the high street of Hatton Garden, and they're still there. You know, 125 years later, someone's still there. So, so cool and, and so romantic to me. So I was I, I was really grateful to get that research grant and to be able to spend so much time. I mean, I, I almost think I'll never get to do something like that again because two months is, is such a long time to indulge in uh, the research of one place. But who knows? Yeah, that was a really good trip. And then, if, yeah, the check... The Czech uh, story was similar. I got to go out there for a couple of weeks and met so many nice people. I mean the Czech story is amazing because it goes all the way back to the 1600s, you know Rudolf II and kind of the tail end of the Renaissance and this new technology that comes in and really revolutionizes gem cutting in all of Europe. You know Germany got technology from from the Czechs, not the jampeg, but the the sort of the quadrant handpiece that everyone was using before the Jampeg in London and in Paris. And even in Sri Lanka, all came from the Czech Republic, pretty much from Prague, so it was great to go to Prague for a week and then go up to the mining towns of Turnov for a week. You know, the Czech Republic is, is such a magical place to me, and uh, even the fact that I don't speak Czech and lots of people don't speak English, I had no problems hanging out there and just... Again, meeting some incredible gem cutters, and everyone was so nice. And I was also able to tell a really good story and write a really good article about the history of check cutting. So yeah, I, yeah, really every place I get to go is it's so it's so it's such a treat, you know, to meet passionate people and express my own passion with them, and and then come home and get to write about it. Um, it's just so lucky. So yeah, th- th- those have been the highlights.
0: You mentioned that the Academy was referenced.
1: So, okay, so the the article that I did, it ended up being so long that we had to do it in two parts. So when you hear the podcast, already part one of the article is already out. So if you look in the last issue of the uh, Journal of Gemology, it's the... I guess it's maybe the winter issue. It's the one that just came out a few weeks ago, part one of the story's in there. So that that goes up to about 1800. Part two of the story is coming in the next issue of the Journal of Gemology, which should be out in the spring. And that's kind of the modern story. So 1800s up until today. And so as I got into the modern story, you know, coming into the 20s, 30s, 40s and on, you know, I'm starting to learn about what's going on in Hatton Garden later you know one once you know post world war ii and all that and so what i've discovered was that there are tons of other gem cutters in in london and one of them is uh, a place called holtz lapidary and so holtz started out as just a gem dealer they weren't a cutting company Um, and in the 40s they opened a cutting workshop and they've been cutting ever since then and then fast forward until I think the early 2000s, Holtz started this thing called Holtz Academy, where they started to train gem cutters using modern machines. So they're not using these old jam pegs like the traditional London cutters, but they're looking more at the the modern stuff that's coming out of America and, and that has been in Britain, you know, since the 40s, 1940s. So as far as I know, Holtz lapidary eventually evolved into the British Academy of Jewelry. So yeah, so I, yeah, I do definitely mention the BAJ in the article. And I, and I was definitely looking at your guys's website a bunch while I was doing my research just to get my facts straight and get, to get all my dates accurate and stuff. So that was really helpful. So thanks to you guys for having such a nice timeline and, and well-documented history on there. Cause that for, for someone like me, that stuff actually comes in handy a lot.
0: I also wanted to ask one other follow-on question in terms of your interest in the American practice. There's a lot of competitions and a lot of designing going on. Are you happy to share a little bit about this side of things?
1: I'm really interested in the American story right now. You know, after spending five years really thoroughly looking at Europe and really understanding How things have been happening in Europe in the last 500 years with, you know, the way that technology slowly evolves and the way that um, taste changes as immigrants move around, um, move around Europe and move into London and move everywhere else. And, and so, you know, there's a kind of a repetitive pattern of the way things happen in Europe and, and. The way the technology has evolved and then we look into America and it's completely different it's probably the most unique story of all gem cutting in the world that I know of right now. And it's it's kind of I don't know it's not really surprising, because if you think about the history of America it's kind of like a it's a rebellious thing like okay we're gonna we're gonna. We're going to be a colony, but then we're going to rebel from the colony, and we're going to break off into our own country. And and you know, I kind of see it as like there's a there's a there's a deep root of rebellion in American culture. And when we look at the story of gem cutting in America, it's kind of the same. Like the stories happening around the 1920s and 30s, the, the beginning of the story. There's a few European gem cutters in America. And they're pretty much doing the same things that were happening in Europe, keeping everything very secret and private and not really telling anybody anything. And then you have this new movement of interested people, laymen that want to learn how to cut stones. The same thing happened in England a little bit earlier, but it never got as big as it did in America. So 1930s, we see a bunch of kind of like engineer type people, who are hands-on technical people that are starting to build their own machines. And they're, they're looking at gemstones from the final view. You know, they have a faceted stone that has arrived from Europe and they're kind of like me, you know, some years ago, looking at that stone being like, how do they cut these crazy intricate patterns, you know? And they're going around asking the European cutters, you know, the, the the immigrant cutters in New York and L.A. and wherever else they are. And of course, nobody wants to tell them anything like, you know, it's too complicated. You need to do five years apprenticeship before you can understand. Don't worry about it. That's our job. You don't have to worry about it. this is kind of a story. But of course, America being as it is, you know, they're not kind of taking that answer. They're like, OK, well, we're just going to invent it ourselves. So they invented their own machines. They invented their own techniques and eventually they reverse engineered the whole process and they figured out how to facet stones which isn't an easy thing to do when you don't have anything you know you only can see the final product and you know you're trying to cut something like a sapphire it's really hard when you don't have the the gear you don't have the techniques nobody will tell you what to do so they really spent 10 to 20 years figuring this out and in the meantime they're writing letters to each other they're writing Letters to the you know the magazines that were were out at the time about earth science and, and gemology and stuff, and slowly but surely this community forms of hobbyist gem cutters, which is what we have today. All of the all of this competition culture and um, precision cutting and hobbyist cutting, it all goes back to this origin point of like 1935 you know the first book that ever came out about gem cutting in America and I'm, I'm really familiar with the roots but it's cool to see how it, it evolves because it eventually uh, inspires everybody else you know when we look at the whole story today I mean if, if we look at the gem cutting culture especially online there's gem cutters everywhere in the world you know it's not just America it's not just Europe you know there's people all, all over Europe all over Africa, all over Asia, all over um, North and South America, really every continent in the world has gem cutters using these American style machines that were being pioneered back in the thirties. You know, because this grew up as sort of a hobby culture that eventually turned into a competition and, you know, a way to interact with other people and do these different kinds of shows and, and challenge each other. Um, It turns into this worldwide community. And once the internet comes in, it gets huge. You know, like as soon as you can send a picture of a fastening machine from America to Sri Lanka or to China or to anywhere, Russia, of course, they're going to make their own. You know, they see what it looks like, they understand how it works, they build a new one. So, you know, you've got people in the 50s and 60s in London building these types of mass machines inspired from photos that they've seen in you know, magazines from America, you got people in Australia doing it, people in Russia doing it. And then eventually, you know, as we get into the 2000s, you know, and we can ship stuff a little bit easier. We've got machines shipping all over the world from Australia, from Russia, from England, from even some in Germany making these modern style machines. And then of course, America is the epicenter of that movement. So, and it's so interesting to see how separate it is you know this whole narrative of the do it yourself gem cutter who teaches himself and and then you can learn from somebody else who's taught themselves it's completely in opposition to the whole, the whole secret apprenticeship system where where you do you know the father teaches the son the master teaches the apprentice you don't tell anybody you know you're you're part of the mystery you know it's the same thing with the goldsmiths they call it the mystery of goldsmithing and And gem cutting's the same, you know, it's the mystery of gem cutting. Nobody knows how it is because it's a secret, except for now, it's not a secret anymore. And so, you know, when I'm doing this historical stuff that we were just talking about, I definitely see myself in that lineage, you know, even though I don't necessarily cut in the American way and I don't live in America and I don't really operate the same as other American cutters, my intention to, you know spread the knowledge and spread the secrets out as much as I can is very much in alignment with what those original cutters in 1935 were doing when they wrote that first book. You know, I'm looking at that book now and I'm just like, you started it, but I'm finishing it, or at least I'm continuing it because of course the story goes on. But, And I love the fact that as that concept has spread around the world you know and we do find competitions in Russia and in Australia and in England and in in other places even now Thailand just did one and it's very much an open community you know it's a brotherhood or a sisterhood or a family and uh, it's not really about the secrets anymore and it's not necessarily about keeping private information away from your competitor I mean some people still do and there's still some secrets out there but Most of the time people want to help each other. And I really think that's so cool. And I want to be part of that too. So all the efforts that I've been doing on YouTube and with my articles and now even with the book have been in that spirit, you know, try to get the good, real, useful information and then put it out there for people. And, you know, some of it's free, some of it's not free, but it's all there if you if you want it. So that's my goal
0: about the book, you decided to put it on Kickstarter. And I wanted to ask you why you decided to go down this road, self-publishing it and getting a campaign started on Kickstarter. And would you recommend fundraising like this to anyone else?
1: Yeah, the Kickstarter was so much fun. I mean, I, I know that some people don't have good experiences on Kickstarter and not every Kickstarter meets its goal, but we were so lucky with ours you know i had this idea of doing the book and it was it was very much thanks to covid that i had the time you know the lockdown i had the time to do it and i met i met a graphic designer who also had the time to do it so we spent like 6 months working on this project and i had already spent the year before that writing some new classes for distance learning so i had all this stuff in my mind about you know kind of advanced topics around gem cutting and also wanting to share some of these classic diagrams that I had become so familiar with, working here in Bangkok and seeing the real, you know, the real commercial side of the cutting industry. And so I had this idea to do do the book. And we thought, Okay, well, how are we going to be able to make something that's good quality, and pay for it and Kickstarter made a lot of sense to me. You know, I've had a bunch of friends that have done Kickstarters. I've never really done a Kickstarter like this before where I actually have something to sell, but I thought, okay, this is a good model. I'm going to try it. And we we crunched numbers for weeks to try and figure out, okay, this is how much the book's going to cost. This is the shipping. This is how much Kickstarter is going to take. This is how much the... the, The payment process is going to take, you know, you have to do a lot of research to do a good Kickstarter and not fail and to not screw yourself up. But luckily, we did really good and I was able to find a really, really amazing publisher here in Bangkok. And so, you know, me and my, my buddy Michael in Pennsylvania, we just spent a lot of hours on Zoom, back and forth on emails, putting together this whole book. And then finally we were ready to do the Kickstarter and we did we did a couple test prints so that we had some books to take photos of and to see the quality and everything make sure it was going to look the way we thought it was going to look. But really we had like two books and we we put the Kickstarter up and my ultimate goal was like can we sell 300? You know, I priced everything for selling 300. And we sold 300 in like I don't know a week or something and I had made a month long Kickstarter. So by the time that the month ended, we had got up to something like 600 books and I was so shocked and thankful and humbled. You know, it's just so amazing when you put this much effort into a project and then not, you know, it's like if you make a YouTube video and you get a lot of views or you put an Instagram photo up and you get a lot of views, it feels good. You know, you're like, okay, people are listening and they people like what I'm doing. That's great. But when people actually reciprocate your energy with money, it's such a different feeling because you know that anybody can just like a YouTube video, but not anybody's going to pay $100 for a book. You know, it's a little bit expensive for, you know, if you're used to just buying a $20 or $10 paperback, you know, it's a a hardcover, nice full color book. It's a hundred bucks. And I was worried that maybe people were going to think it was too expensive or it wasn't worth it. Or, you know, I just never done a book. So I wasn't sure of my own value at that time. And it was just so awesome to see it, you know, erupt in the way that it did. And, and so we ended up printing a thousand and we've already sold 750. So we're almost thinking about, gosh, do we have to do a reorder before the Tucson show? Because maybe we're going to run out before then or re- run out in the show. But I would definitely recommend this again for, for anybody who, who wants to do a book. I think it's a great idea. And, even now I'm already thinking about doing it again and I'm talking to a couple other people because now we have like this sort of publishing company you know we've we've made this this name for the book company and we have plans to do more books under that name so I thought well I've got a couple other friends that, that I know have solid book ideas I will be happy to put out other gemology related books for my friends through a Kickstarter you know there's not really a risk the only risk is if the Kickstarter doesn't it doesn't win And then the only risk is your your time you know because of the fact that we don't have to put in you know twenty or thirty thousand dollars up front to get all these books printed and then another you know twenty thousand dollars to ship all the books it's really expensive to make a thousand books and get them around the world but if everybody pre-orders through the kickstarter or just through some other pre-order method then it's pretty easy for us to really judge, okay, does the book have interest? How many do we think we're gonna sell? How many can we print? And make sure that the budget is correct before we you know, invest too much into getting a bunch of stuff printed. Because of course, once you print the book, then it's on you to sell it. So if you print 1,000 copies and you only have 100 people that want it, well, you might've made a mistake there. Maybe you should have only printed 100 and maybe you just don't make too much money but um i no, i think it was great and i think for anybody who's thinking about it you know take the time make it look good get a graphic designer if that's not your thing and for me i knew i wasn't i was going to be able to write the book but i knew i wasn't going to be able to lay it out in the way that i wanted to that's just not my strong skills so i you know i met the graphic designer who was happy to help who was also a gem cutter so that was really good and then i got like five really close friends who are all either gemologists or gem cutters um in different parts of the world to proofread it about a bazillion times you know we we were proofreading for like two months even till the day we sent it to the printer we were still making some small changes and, and but i think it, you know it worked in the end we, we i don't think there's i've only found one spelling mistake in the whole book and it's just an s missing off one word so we did a really good job to not you know you know after all this work people don't you don't want people to get your book in the mail and then be like oh the paper is really bad or there's a bunch of spelling mistakes or the colors are so bad you know you want it to be beautiful so you know it's important that you take the time and make sure that the product is good but i think once you know the product is good the kickstarter is such a great way for someone who's small like me who doesn't really have tons of money to invest in a big project like that to actually do a big project because you know now it's done and i and i can do another one and we have a little bit of a nest egg of savings that we can actually do another book. And maybe we don't have to do a Kickstarter next time, but it was fun to do it that way. And the Kickstarter is really good for um, making hype. You know, it's really a hype machine and you've got this timeline countdown. It feels very exciting and other people then get excited for you. So it's really cool. It's a cool format. And uh, yeah, I would definitely do it again and I would recommend it.
0: And I also wanted to ask during the pandemic, you of course started delivering more online, began speaking to other cutters in the weekend, for example, conversations, which are then streamed live. And you started really adding content to your YouTube channels. Could you tell us a little bit about this digital component to teaching and sharing this very hands-on practical knowledge?
1: Yeah, so this was very much thanks to the COVID lockdown. You know, before COVID happened, I was, you know, we have a gem cutting school here in Bangkok, and I was just working there full time. You know, we were teaching students and, and doing different things. And once COVID hit, we knew the school wasn't going to make it. You know, we we Bangkok locked down immediately. Thailand was closed for a year, no one could come. So we knew that we weren't gonna have any classes, I knew that I wasn't gonna to go to work anymore, and so I thought, okay, we can can we teach gem cutting online? I'm not totally sure. And immediately people started doing webinars. Like within a week or two, you know, Rui did the first webinar and then a couple other people did webinars. And I was instantly attracted to this idea. I was like, okay, I'm definitely jumping into the webinar game. And I, I was one of the first, really, like maybe the second or third person to start doing a gemology webinar. And I started to just talk to different people that I knew as without really a format, but once the first year had ended and we'd done some cool ones. I I mean, I knew I was going to talk about gem cutting because that's my thing. But once the first year was over and we kind of thought about it, like, okay, that was season one of Webinar World, you know, season one of COVID life. So then once I started to get into the second year, I thought, okay, let's let's make this really more of a format. Like I want to talk to different gem cutters so okay gem cutting conversations that's what we're going to call it Uh, i want it to be really informal you know i don't want it to feel like a class or like a seminar i want it to feel like you're having tea with somebody you know next to the fireplace on a sunday morning and it's very intimate and it's it's me talking to a gem cutter from a different country so every episode you know we're talking to somebody in a different part of the world so that we can try to understand You know, it's a bit of an excuse for me to keep doing research while I can't travel. You know, I can bring the people to me, but at the same time, share it with everybody else. So every month we talk to a different gem cutter for a couple of hours and just get a look inside of their world. You know, what do they do? How do they do it? What's the gem trade like in their part of the world? What kind of technology do they have? And I was really specifically trying to only talk to professional cutters because I know that most of the people that are online and on YouTube are coming from that that hobby world that we were talking about and a lot of those people are professional cutters too. you know they learned through the hobbyist community, but then they've transcended like I have into being pro cutters but I really you know, because there's so much of those people already on Instagram and Facebook, and they're already chatting so much with each other. I really felt like I'm in the unique space to actually bring some other narrative here. You know, you know, again, what's going on in the Czech Republic? What's going on in Thailand? What's going on in Vietnam? You know, what's going on in these other places where we don't really get to hear from the gym cutters that much. And yeah, I'm really happy to say we, we've done now 13 episodes of that. And next month, um, December is going to be the last one before I kind of go on hiatus from webinars. But, yeah, we were able to talk to people all over Europe, America, Canada, Asia, Africa. Um, it's been awesome. And just, you know, the stories are, are so cool because in a lot of ways they overlap, but then in a lot of ways they don't overlap. And, you know, of course, the old school pack Cutter and the Sri Lankan Handpiece Cutter and the American Mast Machine Cutter and the Carver, you know, they're all doing their own special thing and so it's very cool for me to be able to like document this hear the story share it but then also you know save it you know it's up on YouTube you know if you if if you want to learn about this technique or if you want to hear from your favorite cutter who I interviewed it's up there and it's you know it's long it's not like um, you know getting them on a five minute news spot it's like we're going to go two hours so you know we're going to do a studio tour we're going to look at your stones we are going to get your whole life story in here. For better or worse, you know, if you want to hear all that, it's there and and forever it's documented. so um I was super happy with that, and then my I, at the same time that we were doing all that, my mentor Vincent Pardue asked me, "Do you want to co-host one with me because he wanted to do one. you know he's like the world famous field gemologist that everybody knows from his adventures around the world on YouTube, so he was like i want to I want to interview all these different." connections that I have with people at the mines and gemologists. And so, you know, what he wanted to do was pretty much the same spirit as me, you know, talk to different people in the trade, interview them and get their story in a, in a really long form. But he was really on the mining and gemology side. And my personal show was on the gem cutting side. So between the two shows, you know, we've got, I don't know, we must have a hundred hours of interviews now and, and, some really big names. I mean, we especially with the show with Vincent, we talked to a lot of really famous people and a lot of really people that you would never talk to. People people who are miners in Africa and people who are miners in Thailand and in Vietnam and, you know, heat treating people and just people who never go on YouTube and never you know post stuff online and don't write articles. And, you know, we, we got to talk to some big names and also some really special quiet names and get some really unique, backstories behind the trade. So I loved I love all those webinars and it was so much fun.
0: If someone's listening to all of this and thinks god this sounds amazing, I want to learn how to facet. Where should they go for advice on how they can get started? And is there any top tips sort of real quick to add in?
1: Yeah. Well, what we learned in the last couple of years, we we did end up doing gem cutting classes online like through the Zoom platform. It's possible, but it's very tricky because for me, at least as the teacher, if I can't see the students stone in person, it's very hard to tell them what's going on, you know, the Gem cutting is such a subtle experience, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny little changes in your machinery and what you're doing can make really big differences in the stone. And if you're a beginner, those differences are usually bad. You know, you're, you're making mistakes and you're not really sure why. So what I learned quickly was we can only do very basic training. Um, over Zoom because the just the webcam quality isn't good enough. But what I started to think about since then, well, two things. One of them was YouTube videos. And of course, I've gotten so obsessed with making videos in the last couple of years because I've had so much free time. So I think for anybody who's new to gem cutting, YouTube is such a great place, not just my channel, but there's, there's like five really good channels where people are showing t- gem cutting, showing the process, talking about different aspects of it my personal avenue is coming as you know somebody in bangkok who's really deeply part of the gem trade here and who you know works with cutting factories and also has a school and teaches cutting you know i'm i have a interesting perspective on all of it so you know i have a ton of videos really aimed towards new people or even like people who are in the trade that don't know about cutting like if if you're a jeweler or a jewelry designer or a gem trader and you don't really know about cutting I try to give a bunch of background info and reference material and historical context so that you can learn a bit about cutting without, you know, you don't have to learn to cut to learn why cutting is good or what cutting is good or how you can make a stone better or whatever. So I would say that for the beginner, definitely check out my channel and some of the other channels that that I have links to on my YouTube. And then, of course, you know, we have this new book, The Secret Teachings of Gem Cutting. That was very much aim towards not just beginners, but there's a lot for beginners there. And there's a lot for advanced cutters too, because there's so much gemology in there that a lot of gem cutters don't know. You know, there's a lot of designs, but then there's this whole section on basically gemology for gem cutters. You know, what do you need, if you're not a gemologist, what do you need to know about, you know, these special angles and the different the differences between different gem materials. You know, you can't cut a sapphire in a quartz with the same angles. They, the the physical properties of the stone just won't allow it. So you have to understand what's the difference between some of these different stones, and and why do we need different cuts and angles and even polishing techniques for them. And so I try to cover a lot of that stuff on YouTube. But what I've also grown into after doing these Zoom classes and and some other distance learning courses was i really realized that there's a whole market of people that want to learn about gem cutting but they're not able to necessarily come out here to bangkok and do our school or they're they're maybe not able to go anywhere because they have you know families and jobs and everything like that so what i'm working on now and i'm hoping to launch this next month or in january before the tucson show is uh it's like a brand new online school so this is something totally new and it's different from what we were doing before Instead of doing it live with Zoom, which is a bit, you know, time intensive for me to always have to do webinars in strange hours because I'm in the wrong time zone for everybody else. I'm working right now with a couple of people where we're doing a bunch of classes on a new project that's going to be called Faceting Apprentice. So facetingapprentice.com, you're going to find starting in January, uh, basically it's like a, a a digital apprenticeship you know i'm really looking at you know all the stuff we've been talking about so far looking at how all those european cutters and the american cutters how do they pass the information down through their lineages and through their clubs and between the cutting community members and i'm looking at all of that and thinking about okay now we're living in a post covid world you know there are such things as webinars the importance of the internet has has magnified even more than we thought that it could because everybody was stuck at home for two years so zoom calls are normal now webinars are normal um, online classes are normal and videos and of course YouTube style stuff is really normal so why not take everything that we've ever done before and more and put it into video courses, so that anybody who wants to learn gem cutting at home, if they get all the gear, which I have, and I, of course, have videos about what do you need and how to set up your studio, but then once you have it all set up, you can do the whole course from the basic steps to the most advanced steps at home, in your own time, in a reasonable budget, and go from start to finish, from beginner to advanced, and take as much time as you need, whether that means six months or six years, it's up to you there's going to be some kind of live component to the school where you're doing the video course but then there's like a a catch-up like oh I couldn't figure this thing out that you were doing what am I missing and then I can actually tell them okay specifically for you on your stone and your machine you need to do it like this or or, you know whatever so and I'm looking forward to traveling again because as I meet other master cutters now I have this platform you know the Faceting apprentice website, where if I meet a master cutter who has this new secret technique, or you know, really it's an old secret technique, I can say, let me document this. Let me come to you with my cameras and I'm going to document what you do so that it's not lost and we're going to make a new class. And that'll just be like another module that you can add on to the apprenticeship that you're already taking. So as I start to travel around again next year, I'm hoping that I can film some classes on the road and add more flavor than than just me and my wife and the other team members that we're working with right now and really get like a universal kind of experience um, where it's not just about american cutting and it's not just about what we're doing here in bangkok it's very much about the whole world of gem cutting coming together as a kind of universal course and as time goes on the class just gets bigger and bigger and more and more uh, advanced and sophisticated until you know hopefully like in 10 years it's like everything that could be from cabochons to cutting to carving to whatever else we discover out there in the on the road we can just put it all back into the course and people who are subscribing to it can just keep on going not forever but you know as long as they want to and there will always be more to come so that's my dream i don't know if it will really play out like that but i hope so
0: you've mentioned a couple of things that lie ahead for you in the future Justin is there anything else that we should be keeping an eye out for or can get excited about that's coming up
1: definitely so for us like I said we've been stuck here for two years we are just dying to get out of Thailand and see what else is going on so we've planned a really fun trip for ourselves next year starting in January so my wife and I with our dog are going to just travel all over the world for a year And so starting with the Tucson show and then going into Europe for a couple of months, France, the UK, Switzerland, and then Canada, and then back to America for six months, we're going to be traveling all over, making a documentary and also teaching some jump cutting classes along the way. But so my my big goal for next year is I, I really want to do this documentary about the history of American cutting, which is going to be both a book and like a proper documentary video that will I don't know probably go up on YouTube or somewhere in a couple of years but so I'm we're gonna spend six months in the US we bought a car we got all the camera gear with us and we're just gonna go basically in a big circle or it's really a big figure eight around the entire country we're gonna go through all of the old faceting clubs all of the major gym cuttings places all of the museums and And really just dig up all of this old history interview all of the old cutters the famous cutters the infamous cutters and and everybody else that we can get to sit down in front of our camera and so by the time we get back home we're going to have like a bazillion hours of footage to edit through but we should be able to tell a really good story about you know the history of american cutting you know like i said going back to the 1920s all the way now until the 2020s. so it's like a hundred year story And um, I'm really excited for that. So that's going to be a documentary and a book. And then, yeah, I've got some cool stuff planned for more research projects. I've got a research project in the UK coming up with this master cutter in Ipswich that we're going to do, which is all about fusing flaws. I, I met this guy, as I said, when I was researching the London history, I met this old master cutter in Ipswich. And he showed me something I've never seen before. You know, speaking about secrets, I was blown away because it's rare that I see something now that I haven't seen before and he showed me this technique where he can close flaws in emeralds and in rubies and stuff too but it was really about emeralds so I'm going back with microscopes and cameras and and all this other stuff to document his technique and that's definitely going to be one of these upcoming classes and probably an article in a magazine as well so I really want to see what is this all about fusing flaws it sounds so crazy it sounds impossible actually but he showed it to me and it's real and so now we just have to really put it on camera and and show the world like this is a lost technique here's what it is and we're gonna teach people how to do it he's totally gung-ho on letting me learn it on my machine so that I can figure out how to teach it to other people and um, he's very happy to let me come in and just reveal his secret. And he's the only person I've ever met that knows how to do this. So I'm just like, I can't believe this. So that's going to be cool. We got yeah, more books coming. You know, this book was such a success. We're already working on the second volume with more designs and more secrets and everything else. Again, the fascinating apprentice website and then yeah, the Tucson show. I'm happy to come and say hi to everybody and And then, you know, after that, who knows, more traveling. I definitely have some places in my heart that are calling to me. Australia, Venice, you know, back to Germany, as I was saying. So who knows? Um, We know what's going to happen next year. The year after that, hypothetically, we'll come back to Bangkok, but maybe we won't. So I don't know. We'll just maybe we'll stick on the road and, you know, our dog's going to be with us. So we're not going to be missing too much. Maybe we'll be missing our studio, but... um, Hopefully we'll see so many new friends and old friends along the way that we we won't even feel like we're we're missing anything. Plus our family is is out there somewhere too that we got to go see. So should be pretty cool.
0: Gemstones have fascinated human beings for centuries and a lot of jewelers work with them for the creation of their designs, but the creation of a gemstone in itself can also be an art and this practice has as Justin mentioned, a really long standing tradition, which often is not as visible to outsiders for sharing his fascinating life story to date and leading the way in uncovering the secret world so this technique and its masters can be celebrated. I would like to thank you wholeheartedly, Justin. You have and continue to make a meaningful contribution to this field in a variety of manners and we're really grateful for your videos, your book, your teaching, your talks. Thanks so much for also joining me for this conversation.
1: Thanks for having me. Once again, it's been a pleasure. And I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation in real life.
0: So next month, I'll be taking a little break from recording a podcast for the holidays. But in January, I'll be joined by another guest. So watch this space to find out who it is. But for now, this was Sophie Boons for the BAJ podcast, The Art of Faceting with Justin Prim. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.